We come to a familiar account in the book of Luke. This is the account of the demon-possessed gentleman from Granesis, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is, uh, this is that guy that they tried to bind and they couldn't do it. Um, so that's that account. Now, it says in verse 26, then they sailed to the opposite they sailed to the country of Genesis, which is opposite Galilee. And the word then, uh, we haven't been in Luke for a few weeks, so let me just remind you. What's happened is Jesus has been preaching and teaching over in the Galilean area, and it has been, he's drawn quite the crowds to the place where he actually had to push out onto the water and sit on a boat in order to preach to the people so that they wouldn't just be mobbed. And then he says, all right, let's go to the other side. And remember, it had been a long day, and Jesus falls asleep in the boat, and they're making their way over to the other side, 12 miles or so across the Sea of Galilee, but it's nighttime, the sun has gone down, and they find themselves out there in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night, and a storm comes in, and you'll recall that it was a a major storm to the point where they were concerned that they were all going to die, and they wake Jesus up, who looks at them like... Really? He woke me up? I mean, I was finally getting some good sleep here. And he just rebukes the wind and waves and instant calm. And you can see the wind maybe just dying off. But, you know, the waves don't die off. The waves slosh around in there. No. The waves just instantly calm. And everyone in the boat is just, I mean, they were scared about the storm. They're terrified about Jesus. Who is this guy? Is the question that they ask. And you would think at this point in in their life and ministry and relationship that they wouldn't be asking that, but they do. Because it's continuously astounding that Jesus is who he is. Uh, I think they, they just kind of grow hard to exactly who it is they're walking around with every day. So then, after those events, uh, they sail now and they make it. They, they go to where they were going. Jesus has a divine appointment here. Once more, we've seen Jesus have other divine appointments. Remember, he makes his way into the town there where they're at the exact moment the funeral is going on and they're bringing out the dead body. And Jesus, it's the only son of a widow, and Jesus raises him from the dead. He just happens to show up at town at the exact moment they're marching out with him. Uh, No, he doesn't just happen to do anything. Jesus plans it all. So they now come out, they, they get off the boat, and they come onto the land. And immediately, they are, they are confronted by this guy who they land near, apparently, a, a graveyard. And this guy from the city was possessed. He used to live in the city. Now he's possessed by demons. And he's out of his mind. He's just, he's gone insane. He, he doesn't have any clothes on, hasn't worn any clothes for a very long time. Uh, he no longer lives in a house. He just lives in the tombs. And he now runs out there to confront Jesus. Luke is presenting to us an account in which we are to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one who's going to come and he's going to reverse the effects of the curse that has fallen on the world from the sin of Adam. Does he have the capability to do that? That's the question. Is Jesus who he says he is? Can he actually do all of the things that he says he can do? And he has healed the sick. We've seen him do that. He's fed the hungry, you know, seat the 5,000 down and with just a few loaves and fishes feeds them all. 
He has got up and taught the word of God and corrected the false teaching of the day. He has taken the lies that the devil has told and has brought the truth. He's interrupted a funeral and actually said, okay, let's, uh, let's raise this kid back from the dead and give him back to his mom. He just got done controlling nature, taking the wind and the waves and calming them with a word. So now, can he defeat the devil in a strong way? He's cast out demons before. That's occurred in his ministry. But this is a pretty unique situation. This is a situation where this guy, this guy is insane, literally. Uh, Matthew talks about, uh, and Matthew, there's actually two guys, although the, even Matthew immediately focuses on just the one. It says, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gardenians, two men who were demon-possessed met him, and they were coming out of the tombs that were so exceedingly violent that no one could even pass by that road. So here you've got these two guys, and they are just violent. They are out of their minds. If you try to go by there, if you try to go anywhere near this place, they come rushing out. And you can imagine that this must present uh, quite, quite the ordeal, right? I mean, if you're walking along this road and you're unaware that these guys are there, next thing you know, they're screaming and yelling and out of their mind and, and they're enormously violent and they're completely naked, and they haven't probably taken a bath in forever, and their hair is everywhere, and I mean, you know, this is like, ah, run, run for your lives, call the authorities, and so they would, they would call the authorities, and we'll see in a minute, we'll look at that passage, they come and they try to restrain them, they can't restrain them, Um, this, this guy is just completely miserable, I mean, he's not He's not without clothing because he wants to be. We wear clothes for a reason. You want to get the sun off you. You want to get the rain off you. We wear clothing because it's comfortable. I mean, it would be a pretty tough thing to run around without any clothes all the time. So this guy is sleeping on the dirt. No blankets, no nothing. This guy is in pretty tough shape. So seeing Jesus... Following the account here, he cries out and falls before him and says in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, who in the world is saying that? Not this guy. This is the demons that possess this guy. This is kind of pushed forward in the story so that we... so Like the first time you read this account... You're wondering what's with this guy. And so Luke throws to the front here what the guy's problem is. He's going to get into more details later, but this is kind of a jump forward for just a second, just so that we can see here exactly what this guy's issue is. Now, what's interesting is that the demons, they have great theology. I think oftentimes demons have much better theology than, say, an atheist. Uh, No demons are atheists. They're not atheists. They know there's a God. They know very well that there's a God. And they know just how powerful God is. What business do we have to do with you? What what are you doing here? You've been over there in Galilee. Why don't you just stay over there in Galilee? We're over here. You should stay over there. What what business do you have? Son of the Most High God. They, They know exactly who Jesus is. 
The nation has not figured out who Jesus is. The disciples are still kind of in a hmm about exactly who Jesus is. Not, not the demons. They know exactly who he is. Don't torment me. Well, okay. What's that all about? The demons know exactly who God is. James will say, you believe there's one God? That's good. The devils believe that and tremble about it. God took care of many angels on a number of occasions. Uh, At the flood, at the time of the flood, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness and reserved for judgment. And he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the ungodly. That's Peter writing about that. Many of the angels that left their first estate, which is what Jude says, they left their first domain, they abandoned their proper place. God has now put them in eternal bonds under darkness for the final judgment. God has the ability to bind the demons anytime he wants to which is an interesting all on its own, right? That means that God allows the demons to run around and do demonic things. Uh, The moment will come in the book of Revelation where the sixth angel will sound the trumpet and it will state, release the four angels who are presently bound at the river Euphrates. And the four angels who have been prepared for this hour and this day and this month and this year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. There are bound angels. These angels, these demons, which are who the demons are, fallen angels, they are concerned that they are going to join their fellow demons being bound somewhere in the pit or in the bottomless pit or the abyss or there's a variety of terms used for it. Uh, The devil will be cast there for a thousand years while the millennium occurs. And ultimately, you will be cast in the lake of fire. This is the kind of power that Jesus has. The demons know it. The disciples need to learn it. So their fate is sure. There is no doubt exactly where they're all going to end up. And yet, for the moment, they're able to do whatever they want. And what they want to do, and what they are doing, is they are tormenting this guy terribly. So, verse 29, Luke threw that in there, and now he kind of, He backs up a little bit. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So we now get a more complete picture of who this guy is. This this guy has, they've tried to restrain him. You know, Matthew has told us that if you tried to walk by, you know, this guy come running out. He's, He's out here to do violence. And he's, who knows, maybe he's killed people. We don't know exactly how much violence he's perpetrated, but he is someone who has no desire to be restrained. He's filled with rage, and he's got power enough to actually break chains. They tie him up, and it doesn't matter. He just breaks them and and flees. He will not be restrained. He doesn't want want clothing on. He's he's gone out of the city. I, I can't stay in the city. I've got to go out here. In fact, he's living in the tombs. He's gone to the place where the only ones he communes with are the dead. He's over here actually living in the graveyard with no clothing and sleeping on the stones and exposed to the weather. And this is a guy who is, who is really, really miserable. 
Demon possession is a horrible thing. It's, it's not a, it's, there's nothing good about this. Uh, this, is, this is just terrible. And he, he can overcome anybody who tries to restrain him. He's volatile, violent. He's, he's just aggressive. And so everyone in town, uh, you know, people know about him. They know he's out there. I would imagine funerals are pretty interesting. You wonder if they open up a new graveyard, right? Uh, maybe that's when they, they sent the guards out to restrain him long enough for have, us to have another funeral so we can actually get our loved ones out here. And uh, you've you got to do something with this guy. And they would probably go out and attempt to do it, and then he'd run out into the desert because they couldn't restrain him. He's just a madman, literally a madman. Why? Why is he so mad? I mean, we've met other people here in the scriptures who are demon-possessed. They don't don't seem to quite act as bad as this. I mean, they have issues. You know, the children, the parents come and say, my child is demon-possessed. The demon comes upon him, and he tries to cast himself into the fire or into the water. He tries to harm himself. Um, Jesus says to the demon, what is your name? And he says, legion. For many demons had entered him. A legion, by the way, was between four and 6,000 soldiers, depending on the exact war you were fighting and how you wanted to arrange them. But we're talking thousands of people. Um, Mark tells us that the herd of swine, which we're going to get to in a second, that there were over 2,000 swine, which is a pretty massive, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big herd of swine. So... This guy is just overcome. I, I, you can imagine that what's going on in his life. He, he has just been taken over. He's driven. He's unrestrained. They were employing Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. Don't cast us into the abyss. Don't bind us. Um, yes, we've possessed this guy. A whole pile of us have possessed this guy. But um, don't. Don't give the final judgment on us. Now, the disciples who are sitting here watching this, they should be drawing some conclusions here, right? First of all, the demons know who Jesus is. Not that we need the affirmation of the demons. In fact, in a public setting, when the demons say, we know who you are, Jesus commands them to be quiet. Jesus doesn't need the affirmation of the demons. But his disciples are already convinced that he's the Messiah. They're not fully sure on exactly what that is. But they're watching this, and without a doubt, they are looking and saying, the demons not only know who Jesus is, they're absolutely terrified of him. This person who, by the way, was in the boat, who just completely calmed this storm not two hours ago, now he's talking to the demons, and they are terrified that he's going to cast them into the abyss. Once again, you can only imagine they're sitting around thinking, who in the world is this guy? Yeah, that's the question, right? That is the question Luke is trying to answer. Who is this guy? He is the very son of God. He is God. That's who he is. This is a guy, and it's really important to capture this in in the narrative, get this, this is a guy who can't be restrained. I mean, everybody has tried to restrain this guy. I'm sure he's tried to restrain himself. I mean, no one wants to, can you imagine sitting around the pouring rain with no clothes on, on a cold stone? I mean, nobody wants to do that, but he can't, he can't overcome what's happened to him. He cannot 
restrain himself. The authorities have gone out and tried to restrain him. No one can restrain him. Now, there was a herd of many swine, about 2,000 by Mark's account, uh, there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. They can't do anything without the permission of Jesus. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. Here we've got 2,000 demons, at least, maybe four, maybe who knows how many of them there are. Thousands of demons. And yet they can't do a thing without asking Jesus' permission. We know you're going to cast us out of this guy, but can you let us go into the swine at least? We want to possess something. Um, okay, this is their request. Jesus is completely free to give it or not. This is once more this unbelievable affirmation of the power that Jesus holds. He has complete power over the realm of the demonic. They can't do anything unless he says that they can do it. So the man, by the way, when the demons are cast out, we'll see in a second that, that they, this guy actually gets back in his right mind and gets saved, as we would use the term. This, this is a guy who is going to be sent forth as a missionary. So the demons... Do, in fact, Jesus, of course, commands them to come out. And they come out of the man, and they enter the swine, and they go into the herd, and the herd now acts just like this guy. The same demons possessing the entire herd now are unrestrained. You can imagine they're in a pen. Uh, Obviously, the water is right there because they're going to rush down the steep bank of the lake and all be drowned. And, by the way, pigs can swim. Um, so this is, this is a situation where as soon as the demons enter the swine, I'm sorry, I just can't resist. That's where we get deviled ham from. No, I didn't say that. Yeah. Um, as soon as the pigs, as soon as the, the demons enter the pigs, they act just like the man. They just go bananas. They, you can't restrain them. And so they just, they just act violent. They act unrestrained. They, they exhibit the exact same thing the guys does, self-destructive behavior, and they, they rush over towards the lake and go into it, and they all drowned. Why, why? Why does Jesus allow this? And it, I mean, it doesn't explicitly say this, but this is a clear indication to everyone. We're dealing with the demonic, so you can't really see the demonic. You can't, you can't see demons. You, So this is a visible representation of a spiritual reality. The man says, I have thousands of demons. Are we sure he has legions? Well, we have thousands of swine. And guess what? All of them, when we cast the demons out of this guy, all of them rush headlong into the lake and they all drowned. So this is a physical manifestation to everyone watching, the disciples, the man himself, we know that there are people who are watching the herd of swine. We'll see them in just a second. They are close enough to be hearing and listening because they're going to relate to the people of the town exactly how this all went. And so they, you know, here's, here's part of the problem. When we start talking about demon possession, and I don't 
We could talk the rest of the morning about that, and I don't really want to do that. It's, it's a lengthy discussion. We'll talk about it a little bit, though, because I, I think it is important to talk about it. Uh, when we start looking at demon possession, uh, the demons, they're liars. So one of the major problems you have in, de- in dealing with any kind of demonic thing you think is going on is that experience is a horrible authority. You just, you, you can't tell. If any of us were put in a room with a person who was demon-possessed or with the devil, and they wanted to, they could just completely deceive us. They have been lying for thousands of years, and we're kind of new on the scene. I mean, we think we're clever, and, but we're not. The devil could lie to us. He could make a lie sound just like the truth. He could make the truth sound just like a lie. The devil is much more powerful than we are. And so when you start dealing with things like demon possession, the only thing we can go by is the word of God. We have to go by what the scriptures actually say. Experience is not the final authority. Someone may say they're demon-possessed. Are they? Who knows? How do you know whether they are? They can say they are. That doesn't mean they are. You can perhaps go through what you think is some kind of exorcism and, and declare that you've cast the demon out of the person. Have you? do you know, right? I mean, there's no way to know these things. So we have to be very careful. What we do know, by the way, is that the casting out of demons is a first-class miracle on par with making the lame walk, the deaf hear, and giving sight to the blind. There are very few people in the scriptures who actually have the ability to cast out demons. Very few people actually get it done, and it's Jesus, his disciples, and the people that Jesus gives authority to, the 70, when he sends them out. And they come back and they say, even the demons are in subjection to us. He says, yeah, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Because that's what really matters, doing some kind of something. You can cast demons out of people. Okay, then what? If they don't do the right thing, the demon will just come back and their situation will be even worse. So if we look for just a second here, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there are some Jewish exorcists, people who claim to be able to cast out demons. And they went from place to place and attempted to uh, name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, there were seven sons of one Sevilla, a Jewish chief priest, who were doing this. And the evil spirits answered and said to them, um, well, Jesus, we know, and we certainly know about Paul, but who in the world are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Instead of taking his own clothes off, he took their clothes off. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many of those who believed kept coming to the disciples, confessing and disclosing their practices. So they're coming to Paul and his followers. And many of them who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a huge amount of money. So the word of the Lord was growing mighty and prevailing. Why? Because Paul has the ability to actually cast out demons. 
and the sons of Sevilla, uh, not so much. Paul did, because Paul could actually do it. So when Paul writes his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus is the place where they have the goddess Diana. Great is the goddess Diana. You know, that, that whole situation, that occurs in Ephesus. And they make all those little idols and statues, and they engage in idolatry. And, and the goddess Diana gives them a great uh, livelihood, and the preaching of the gospel threatened their livelihood, which is why they had that big meeting and got in there and yelled, great is the goddess Diana, for a couple of hours. Uh, this is the place they had demonic worship of the goddess Diana. They had people who were demon-possessed. They had people who practiced magic and brought all their magic books to the place. Now, these are the people who are Christians, brought all their magic books and burned them, but obviously other people who weren't Christians kept their magic books. And they, had, they were so steeped in the idea of magic, the idea that you could curse your enemies, the idea that you could bind the spirit world to bring about your will, which is what magic is, is this idea that if I make a covenant with the spirit beings, they'll do my bidding. This idea is so ingrained in them as a society that here they are bringing, once they get saved, they bring their books and they're worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And this is just rampant in their society. Demon possession, idol worship, magic, all this stuff. So you would think that when Paul writes his epistle to the church at Ephesus that he would talk to them about how to deal with demon possession. That he would Lay out for them exactly how you deal with this demonic forces and all. And he does. But it's not like you think. There's no rebuking ministry here. No one's even advised on how to cast out demons. There's nothing in the book of Ephesus about uh, Ephesians about how to cast out demons. That's not the ministry that people have. That was a unique ministry given to the Apostle Paul because it was given to the Apostles. But it wasn't a ministry that we all have. When Paul finally gets around to talking about how to deal with demonic forces, he doesn't talk about demons. He doesn't talk about what to do with them. What he talks about is this, and you've already heard this passage once this morning, but I want you to hear it again And think about what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So what do you do? Well, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I mean, you might think it is. You might look at people and think that that's what's going on, but it's not. We're actually against rulers and powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Satan is in charge of the whole planet. We kind of get confused about exactly how Jesus, uh, sorry, how Satan works. We get the idea that that there's certain just obvious demonic things. And there are, but it's a lot more subtle than that. Satan doesn't have to be a guy with horns and a pitchfork and and a red suit and a funny tail. He doesn't have to do that. He just uses the whole system. He goes after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we're susceptible to all three of those things. We we are driven by every single one of those drives. 
themselves. And so the devil just uses them. I mean, he's got the whole world. He's got everything. The nations, the advertising, what's on, the things that we see, the sides of, we don't have too many public buses here in town, but the sides of buses and billboards, the devil just owns it all. It's not like he has to be in your face. He just is in your face. The whole world is at his disposal. So when we fight the devil, we fight the whole world. We fight against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we have to recognize that the the battle is broader than we think it is. Although in our own specific situation, there are specific sins we need to fight. But it's a broad battle. So you put on the whole armor of God, recognizing that he's got the whole world in his hands sure that song is actually about God, right? I mean, you might sing that and think you're thinking about God, but actually at this moment, the God of this world is the devil. He's the guy with the whole world in his hands. So you put on the full armor of God and and that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, what you do is you stand firm. If you want to fight the devil, just stand firm. Stand for the truth. Stand up and speak the truth. Do the truth. Be faithful in your marriage, faithful at work, faithful to your family. Be faithful. Stand firm. Put on your loins, garn your waist with truth, and put on your breastplate of righteousness. And have your feet shod with the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Put these things on so that when the devil shows up with prayer... And petition to God, praying at all times in the spirit, you'll be able to stand faithful. Stand faithful. We don't need to chase the devil. We don't have to go find him. We don't have to rebuke him. We don't don't have to sit around and rebuke the demons. There's none of that in the Bible anyway. In fact, when Michael the archangel was confronted with Satan, he said, I don't rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So we don't have to... If I were to meet, and I don't know, honestly, that I have ever met anyone that I actually thought was demon-possessed. Well, I take that back. Maybe there was one person. They were, there was something wrong with that person. Um, What you need is the gospel. You preach the gospel. Preach the truth. And if you preach the truth and the person gets saved, they can't be filled with the Spirit of God and any demon. We can't cast out demons. That's not our, we, we don't have the power to do it. Unless you can give sight to the blind and the hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb. I mean, if you can do those things, then sure, you can cast out demons too. But it's a package deal. They all go together. And so if we don't think we have those other abilities, we don't have, our only power to deal with the devil is to take out the sword of the spirit and bring out the word of God and through prayer and the preaching of the gospel. This is the weapons of our warfare. So, the reaction to all of this. Well, verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what happened, they ran to Jesus in repentance and said, can you deliver us too? Uh, Yeah, no, 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 that's not what they did. They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country that, hey, you guys... uh, Wow, we, you know that you know that crazy guy down there in the in the tombs who runs around and he's so violent and chases everybody? Uh, 
you got to see this. Jesus cast demons out of this guy. They went into the swine that we were watching, and the whole herd, 2,000, all 2,000 ran into the, into the Sea of Galilee, and, and they all drowned. This is just unbelievable. And by the way, um, this is not, this is not a, a Jewish area. These, these are not Jewish people. They, they don't want Jesus to go away because we're Jewish and we're, and we're fearful that people are going to find out we're raising swine over here. First of all, it's not that far. You can look from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. Uh, you've got a whole herd of 2,000 swine over there. You, it doesn't take much to look over there and see that. Um, it's a little ways, but it's not that far. And two, if you're Jewish, I remember at this time, in the first century here at the, at the life of Jesus, the people in charge of, of Judaism are the Pharisees. If you were over there raising swine... You're never coming to the temple. You're never getting anywhere near. You're not getting in any synagogue. I mean, we're not going to have it. You are just going to be complete outcasts. You're not going to be able to somehow hypocritically do this on the side without anybody noticing. There's no, you're, no one's going to buy anything from you. So this is a Gentile area. These are Gentile people. And also, I should mention, this doesn't have anything to do with the the loss of the swine, right? The owners never show up. We never hear from the owners. No one ever represents the owners. They're not upset because the whole herd of swine all went into the ocean and into the Sea of Galilee. They're not there because, oh, you're bad for business, Jesus. You need to go away. That's not, that is not what they're upset about. That is not their issue. So they, this, these guys go, and they tell everyone what happens, and now everybody comes out to see. We've got to come out. Verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened, and they come to Jesus. And here's what they see. Here's this man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And then they became frightened. The guy has got everything back here. He was insane. He's now sane. He was unclothed, and now he's clothed. I mean, all of this stuff that that this guy had given up, you couldn't restrain him. He now has self-restraint. He's sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. People think they want to meet God. If you listen to some debates, you know, the atheists will get up and they'll say, you know, if only God would come out from behind the curtain, if I could just see a miracle. You think so? Really? You think so? Because these people are looking at this guy and it's a clear miracle. Who in the world had the power to restrain this guy? No one could restrain this guy. They knew they couldn't restrain this guy. They'd sent people to restrain him. They'd put chains on him. They couldn't restrain him. He's a screaming lunatic. And now he's not. Jesus, he has met Jesus, and he is now sitting, clothed, in his right mind, calm, relaxed. And they're terrified. Why? Because they've seen the power of God. People think they want to see the power of God right up until they do. And when they do, they're terrified. And by the way, there's no repentance. No one repents. They don't, they don't look at this, and, and this testimony to the power of Jesus to take the bound and make them free, to take this guy who is just totally out of his mind and provide him with sanity, you would think that they would go to Jesus and say, whatever power you have, we need it. 
I mean, anybody who has the power to do this, we need to hear about the power that you have. Is that, is that what they say? Is that how they... No, it's not. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. I mean, they, the people, the herdsmen, had seen the whole transaction. They'd seen how it all went with details that don't even appear in this account. I mean, the, the words, all the words that Jesus spoke and all the words the demons spoke. And, and once the guy was... When the demon was actually cast out of him, how that all went... They watched it all, and then they ran to tell everybody. And they relayed all this. And what happens? All the people of the country, of the Gennesaret and the surrounding districts, asked Jesus to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. Please go away from us. Can you imagine... And by the way, if you're thinking that, well, if only we could do miracles, we could, man, what an evangelistic ministry we'd have. Boy, if we could just go down here to the local hospital, and when we walk in the front door, everybody's sick, and we walk through the whole place, and when we go out the back door, everybody is made well. In fact, that dead person driving up there in the ambulance who didn't make it, we get to open the ambulance doors and bring them back to life. And you think, wow, what a revival that would bring. I mean, the whole town would just be on their feet waiting to hear the gospel. Yeah, they might be waiting to hear the gospel, but if you're waiting for them to all repent when they hear the message of the gospel, um, not so much. Look at Israel. Jesus is going to say to them shortly, Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the mighty works that have been done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented by now, you guys. You actually get all these great works and there is no repentance. In fact, Jesus, the greatest miracle worker who ever lived, they crucify him like a criminal. The idea that somehow we need miracles, that somehow that will get the job done. Um, no. No, we don't need miracles, not like this. To get, We just need to speak the truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Preach the gospel. Don't feel like you have to water it down. Don't feel like you have to somehow do something to it so it's not quite so offensive. It's offensive. People don't want to hear they're sinners. They don't want to hear they need to repent. They don't want to hear that Jesus had to die and shed his blood on their behalf for them. They deserve hell. Jesus died for them. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know it. They don't want you to tell them. And miracles aren't going to help that. But we tell them anyway. Preach it anyway. That is the power of God into salvation. There's no other message. It's not like we've got something else to say. They need to repent or they will perish. Eternity is real. And they're going to be facing one shortly. This life is brief. It's time today to repent. So Jesus is like, okay, so he gets in the boat, and the man from whom the demons had been gone out was begging him, let me come with you. Jesus is like, no, you need to stay here. He sent him away saying, go back to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what a great thing Jesus has done for him. Just Go tell people the great things Jesus has done for you. What wonderful advice, right? Go out and tell people the great things Jesus has done for you. 
Tell people. This is what this event results in. He doesn't get to go off with Jesus. He gets to go be an ambassador. That's us. We're still in this world. Jesus is going to come get us. He's going to come get us all in his father's house or many condos. He's going to prepare a place for us, and he will come and get us. And uh, when he does, it'll be great. But you know what? In the meantime, we're your ambassadors. We're here to tell people the great things God has done for us. So let's do it. And we don't need miracles other than the miracle of your life. You know who you are. You know who you really are. You know what, you know what your heart really is. Um, don't be afraid to share with people, some of that anyway. And let them know that God has transformed your heart. If you do nice things, if you're a kind person, it's the power of the Spirit of God. Tell people the great things God has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, we are once again amazed at the great power that you have. Once more, Luke has recorded for us your ability to reverse the curse, not just to reverse it in the land or to reverse it in illness or to reverse it with teaching, but to reverse demonic power as well. And you have the ability to transform hearts. Lord, help us to be part of that process. Help us to have the boldness to declare the truth, to speak truth, and to recognize that we are at a moment in our own nation and culture where the window to do that without being severely persecuted is closing. May we be bold while we can be. May we work for the night is coming when it is going to be very dangerous. So Lord, give us the wisdom and the courage and the opportunity to declare your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.